If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Mark chapter 6 as we continue in our series on the life of Christ. Mark, that is, chapter 6. And I'm going to start with a question that I'm going to sort of sow throughout this message, and here it is. If the evidence of God's power in this church relied upon your faith, how much of that power would we experience? Well, you say, I'm glad God's power isn't dependent on my faith, amen? Not so fast. Our passage today is going to say otherwise. There's only two times, two recorded instances in the New Testament where Jesus is recorded to have been stunned out of his senses, amazed. It's translated, the word translated marvel, wonder, amazed in various translations. Only two times was Jesus ever amazed like that. He wasn't amazed easily. Let's just put it that way. One of them is right here. When the not-so-favorite son returned home to Jerusalem, I'm sorry, to Nazareth, where uh, the home of his upbringing. Now, this, this story we're about to read is found in all three synoptic gospels. When I say synoptic, I mean that, that just means they're similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics. And uh, all three of those books have this story. What's interesting is they all place it at different points in Jesus' life. Isn't that interesting? Luke, who is the most chronological of, uh, of Gospels, and I'll allude to him several times, he, he, he places this event right after the temptation of Christ. So if you've been with us, we saw the birth of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus. Last week, we saw the temptation of Jesus. And so Luke puts this right after that. It probably took place maybe a year or so after his temptation. But all three show that those most familiar with Jesus were the most offended by him. And Luke concludes that they let him outside to chuck him off a cliff. It didn't work, but that's what they tried to do. We're actually looking at Mark's account. It's, the, it's short, it's to the point, and it drives home the power of faithlessness. We are talking about Jesus in the face of the faithless. And here it is, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. So he's in Nazareth now. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. This is where Luke would include, some of you know the story, where he unrolls the scroll finds Isaiah 61, that messianic passage, and he reads it. You know, he's the one who's going to give sight to the blind and this, and he, and he rolls it back up, hands it to the attendant with all eyes fixed on him. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled. He, in essence, claimed to be the Messiah. That's what took place here. Mark just cuts that out. And many heard him and were astonished. That word means to be struck out of your senses. a very strong word. Saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this 
the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Oh, by the way, so much for the perpetual virginity of Mary. Jesus had at least six brothers and sisters, and there it is. Sorry to blow the thought you had on that one. But look what happens. And they, were, they took offense at him. That's, we get our English word scandalized from this word. They're scandalized by this. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except to heal a couple of people, a few sick In verse 6, and he marveled. He was amazed because of their unbelief. So here we are in Nazareth. This is Ghettoville. This is the other side of the tracks. Remember the the line, what good come out of Nazareth, right? That's, That's where he grew up. And he's in a synagogue. Now, the synagogue originated during the Babylonian captivity. If you know your history, Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, carried off the captives. And there in Babylon, they still wanted to worship God. They couldn't sacrifice. They started the synagogues. And they are to this day. And it wasn't like a church service, but they did a lot of things that you and I are accustomed to. There was singing. There was reading. There was scripture reading. There was a message. There was even a priestly blessing that would take place at the synagogue. By the way, the synagogue would also, they also had synagogue discipline. They called it putting out of the synagogue. You see this in John chapter 9. And by the way, to be put out of the synagogue was way worse than church discipline today. When you, when you remove somebody by church discipline because of perpetual sin that they're unwilling to repent of, uh, you, you are, they are shamed for sure. But to be put out of the synagogue back in that day, you were absolutely ostracized. If you were a businessman, nobody patronized you. You were done until you got things right. So this is where Jesus is at, and this is where he begins his ministry, in his hometown, and it doesn't start off well. Verse 2 says, as he's reading, they are astonished. You see, that, that's that word which means a strike out of one's senses. And notice what they say. Look at what in the world. Isn't this the carpenter? You see that there? By the way, the Greek has the article the, specifically pointing out the carpenter. This is Nazareth. This isn't Los Angeles, okay? It's not even Des Moines. It's not like they got 15 carpenters in town. Jesus might have been the only carpenter. We're pretty sure Joseph is gone. He's off the scene. There's no evidence of Joseph. He's, He's died by now, more than likely. And they're looking at this going, isn't this the carpenter? And these are his brothers and sisters. And by the way, the word carpenter is, is, is the word tecton. It's a, it's, a, it's a Greek word that literally means handyman. Okay? And I tell you that because, um, again, I hate to be bursting bubbles, but Jesus probably worked more with stone than he did wood. If you've been to Israel, as I have, you'll see mangers. Here's a manger. This is one we saw there. This is what Jesus, not this isn't the very one, but this is what Jesus was laid in. It's a cattle trough, and it was stone. Jesus probably cut more stone than he did wood. But here's the point. 
they are looking at it. Carpentry, handymanship, whatever it was, was a noble occupation, but it wasn't a spiritual one. They're looking, they're incredulous. What do you, what's the deal? You're not a rabbi, and you didn't follow a rabbi. By the way, back in those days, if a rabbi saw that you had the acumen, if, they, if, you, had the, if you were spiritual, if you were knowledgeable as a young teenage boy, they would say, follow me. And then it would be the greatest privilege of all to follow the rabbi. And that didn't happen to Jesus. And that's the reason they're going, what in the world? I mean, who is this reading and telling us these things and claiming to be Messiah? They saw him as a common laborer. He didn't fit their mold. And by the way, those that God calls by faith never fit the mold. They never fit the mold. One thing does stand out is faith. They are people of faith. Those whom God calls are people of faith who will go wherever he tells them to go, do whatever he tells them to do, say whatever he tells them to say. That's living by faith. Again, in Luke chapter 4, when his account has Jesus reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and then Luke shows how Jesus is omniscience. God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. It shows his omniscience on full display because even though, even in Luke's account, it says they were astonished, that's all it says. Jesus reads their minds. And he can tell they're mocking in their minds. And so he says to them, uh, surely you're going to say, physician, heal yourself, which was an old uh, maxim from the ancients, which basically said, I mean, heal yourself. In other words, you've, you've been healing people outside of Nazareth. Do it here. Come on, Jesus. Show us your stuff right here. That's what was going on here. That's what he meant when he asked that question. In fact, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the old uh, the blasphemous play, uh, uh, how, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. You remember that in the 70s? And there's the song, Herod's song to Jesus. Show to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. Remember that? That's the idea here. That's what's going on here. They're mocking him because they're faithless. There's something about sharing with those who are closest to you. Would you agree? There's just it's almost easier to talk to somebody that's not my blood relative or somebody super close to me. It's just, it's just so hard. I know this. When I first became a Christian, one by one, my family forsook me. My friends forsook me. I had a friend threaten to kick me out of his house. I had somebody on the phone yelling at me, literally yelling at me, not letting me get a word in edgewise. They, and I finally got tired and just hung the phone up. I'm pretty sure they talked for five more minutes, not knowing I, was even, I wasn't even there. But for the most part, they just kept their distance. But it seemed to me, it seemed right that if I were to call of God, if I were to preach broadly later on, I would need to preach near me early on. There in Waterloo, Iowa, which was basically, you know, the Nazareth of Iowa, kind of. Sorry, Waterlooans. And be willing to suffer the consequences for it. Which, the other maxim, familiarity breeds what? And I experienced that. I want to look and really spend the balance of our time on the last two verses that we just read. 
Because in these last two verses, there are two statements that are absolutely astounding. And they will arrest you if you give any attention to them at all. The first one, you already saw. He could do no mighty work there except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. That's it. He could do, he couldn't do it. He, some of your Bibles say he was unable. What? How do you limit a limitless God? Jesus was omnipotent God, amen? And yet it says he could not. Now, granted, Matthew's account of this, we said all the synoptics have this. Matthew's account in, in Matthew chapter 8 says that he did not, which speaks of, of unwillingness. But Mark says he couldn't do it, which speaks of inability. Just so that you know, this isn't the only time something like this takes place in Scripture. I remember years ago reading for the very first time the, the powerful 78th um, chapter of Psalms. And it's a record of Israel's unfaithfulness. Constantly, in spite of all God had done, unfaithful, unfaithful, unfaithful. And because of their unfaithfulness, when I came to the middle of the psalm, imagine my surprise when I read this. They limited the Holy One of Israel. Have you ever read that? Now, I read it out of the New King James. The King James and the New King James actually has that word, limited. Most other modern and all otherwise very solid translations don't translate that word limited. They translate it something like they provoked or they, uh, or some such thing, or pained. That word limited is the only time it's ever used in the Old Testament. That's the only time it's ever used. And it literally means to set boundaries on. That's why the King James and New King James translated it limited. The Holy One. Of Israel. In some way, these people of Nazareth, their lack of faith in Jesus had a direct correlation to the expression of his power among them. David Jeremiah said this unbelief is the greatest obstacle in the expression of faith in the life of Christians. The greatest problem we face in churches today is the problem of unbelief, unquote. How would you respond if I told you that God wants to do miraculous things here at Sailorville Church, but it's your faith that's holding them back? Now, we live in a day of contagion, right? With COVID, we're all, some are a little more concerned than others. Uh, most of us is like, please, let's just get over this. And some, not so much. But listen to this. Faith has a contagion all its own, good or bad. When you exercise genuine faith, you will positively impact those around you. Is that not true? When you're around people who live by faith, I just got to be around them. They might encourage me. They might even convict me, but I got to be by them because they are men or women of faith. And contrarywise, when you're, when you're around faithless people, they negatively impact you. And they can bring down whole churches, whole Christian societies. Don't believe me? Remember the story of Gideon. This shows you how God recognizes the contagion of faithlessness. Gideon, 
He was a judge. God calls him, Judges chapter 6. God says, I'm going to have you beat the Midianites who are beating up on you. There's 135,000 Midianites. So Gideon gets together 32,000 Israelites. Pretty bad numbers, but still 32,000. First order of business from God. Very first, he says to Gideon. I'll tell you what, Gideon. Tell everybody that's scared, everybody that's fearful, everybody that has no faith, go home. 22,000 of them take them up on it right now, and they're gone. Why would, was God, what was God doing there? At the very least, he was proving the power, the contagion of not only faith, but faithlessness. And that's why I ask you, what do others catch from your faith? Because just the opposite is true with Nehemiah. Remember him? Nehemiah, he comes. He gets permission. He goes to Jerusalem. The, law, the, the, the walls are dilapidated. They're broken down. They're burned. It's discouraging. He can barely get around on his horse. And yet he sees what God could do. And he comes out and says, let's rise up and build. And everybody is galvanized. That's a man of faith. That's what faith does. It's a contagion. You say, well... You know, if I saw a miracle or two, I'd, I'd have faith too. Really? Have you ever read about Pharaoh? He saw plenty of miracles. It didn't produce faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? The word of God. Let me prove that to you. The only story you need to know about this is the story that Jesus told in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man rejects God, goes to hell. Lazarus, the beggar, is in heaven. The scene Jesus depicts is heaven on one side with Abraham and hell on the other side where the rich man is and a chasm between the two. And a dialogue takes place. The rich man is in hell and he is suffering. In fact, it, it uses a word basinos, which is the most excruciating Greek term available in the Greek language for suffering. That's what he's experiencing in hell. Abraham says there's a gulf between us. You can't, you're not going to get relief. So with that, this is where it gets really fascinating. With that, the rich man says, well, then look, I have five brethren. Would you send Lazarus back and to speak to them so that they don't have to come here? Imagine that. Your suffering is so great, but you can't imagine bringing anybody else there with you. By the way, you take all of your emotions to hell if you go there. All of your affections go with you as well. But what's fascinating is how Abraham responds to the rich man. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear that, them. In other words, they have the Bible. Let, let your brethren hear that. But not to be outdone, the rich man says, no, 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 Father Abraham, you don't get it. If, you see, if, if Lazarus comes back from the dead and speaks to my five brethren, then they'll believe. To which Abraham says, listen, if they won't believe... Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if one is risen from the dead. Surely faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And some of you might be thinking, you know, you're, you're like theological fatalists. You know, well, God is sovereign, whatever, his will will be done. Whatever. God is sovereign. He is sovereign. But he makes you and me responsible to live for him, to express and to exhibit a life of faith. 
And I would remind you that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, he, when, when his disciples came back, they said that these cities had rejected his message. Jesus pronounced judgment upon them, and he said, if, he said, if the miracles that were done in front of you were done at Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Have you ever, ever read that? And he says it again. They would have repented. I've said this to you before, but I want you to get it into your mind, especially when you think about walking by faith. God knows not only what will happen, God knows what would have happened. Think about that as it pertains to you and your life of faith. I said only two times is it ever recorded that Jesus was ever amazed at somebody's faith. And I'm betting many of you thought of one right away, the, the Roman centurion. How, how many of you thought of the Roman centurion? But I, a number of you did. And you are right. The Roman centurion comes to Jesus, and he asks for his servant who's dying to be healed, probably his son. We don't know for sure. Somebody he loved, and, and uh, Jesus said, okay, I'll come to your house. Remember that? And the servant says, no, you don't, you don't have to do that. I get it. You're a man of authority. I'm a man of authority. I have people that answer to me. I have to answer to people. I tell somebody to go here. They go. And you just say the word and it'll be done. I mean, if Jesus said he'd come to your house, would you turn him down? But Jesus was so awestruck by that man's faith. It, It tells us he was amazed. And then he says, I haven't seen this kind of faith anywhere. That's one. But this is the other. And let me just tell you something. Jesus was not easily amazed. What got his attention was not always the things that get your attention or my attention. You remember the story of the widow with two mites? Raise your hand if you remember that story in some ways. Okay, most of you do. It's at the end of Mark 12. You don't need to go there. But Jesus is in the temple, and he's looking at people give. And he sees this widow with two mites. That's the equivalent of a penny. That's all she has, and she puts it in the offering. And Jesus gathers his disciples and says, look look at that. Look at that. She's given more than anybody else because she's given out of her poverty. Look at that. Chuck DeClean, former evangelism pastor here, now on staff over at New City Church, preached a few weeks ago, and he alluded to this. And something I'd never seen before. Bummer, chapter divisions are sometimes. Because at the very end of chapter 12 is the story of the widow with two mites, where Jesus told his disciples, come here, come here, come here, look at this. The very next scene, his disciples are, he and the disciples are leaving the temple. They're leaving the temple, and they look behind, and the disciples say, look, teacher, what, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Two different looks, two different perspectives, two different things that got people's attention. Think about this. Jesus goes, by the way, that, those buildings are going to be gone when they day. Not one stone is going to be on top of the other. The disciples were impressed by the beauty of a building. Jesus was impressed by the beauty of a faith. How is he responding to yours. 
How's he responding to mine? Because he surely sees your faith. The other, only other time the word amazed, wonder, marvel, this very word ever is used to refer to Jesus, is right here at the end. I show it to you again. He was amazed at their unbelief. That's the people of Nazareth. And the word amazed is, is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means it's like, in, it's like being in a perpetual state of amazement. It wasn't like, oh, wow. No, it's like, wow. Now, remember, if you, if you saw the reading, verse 2 says, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Did you see that? It's a different word, but it essentially means the same thing, like blown away. And I point that out because you can be impressed with Jesus without believing in him, which is exactly where some of you are right now. You're impressed. Jesus? Yeah, give me Jesus. But you don't have real faith, not in him anyway. You can be impressed with Jesus without actually believing in him. And don't ask me how to explain this, but the faithlessness of those in Nazareth was enough to keep Jesus from doing great things. How is Jesus responding to the faith of Sailorville Church? To your faith. If the evidence of God's power in this church relied upon your faith, how much of that power would we experience right here? Does that humble you? Well, welcome to my world. Years ago, I was challenged by a friend to dream bigger. Bigger than I had been dreaming here at Sailorville. I thought I was dreaming pretty big. People were getting saved, getting baptized, church was growing. We had outgrown our facilities, and we'd added and we'd remodeled for the first time in decades. I was feeling pretty good. In fact, the only thing our church needed at this point, in my mind, was a gymnasium, because that pretty much cinches it up, right? You're a real church if you have a gym. And we took up offerings. The offering was so pitiful, because our people were tapped out. It was so pitiful. I didn't even tell the church how much it was. It was so bad. And I was so discouraged. So discouraged. On Sunday, Sunday became Monday, and Monday I walked into my office, and I sat there with our large staff of a counseling pastor and a youth pastor. There's three of us sitting at, the, at a table. And I was sort of muttering, probably to myself. And Kevin Thomas, the counseling pastor, looked across the table and said, well, maybe it's time to plant a church. And I said, what did you say? I don't know. Maybe it's time we plant a church. That Statement that faith would become the mustard seed of the engaged network. I wanted to expand our facilities, God wanted to expand my faith. And today, 17 years and six churches, and 3,500 more people later. Kevin Thomas and his wife, Jeannie, are leaving to plant the next church. Amen? That is living by faith. Amen? 
That is living by faith. And just the other day, when a couple comes to us who came to Christ just a few years ago through our ministry and said, God has called us to leave the country and serve him in another. That is living by faith. And recently, when a high schooler of ours took her stand to love the LGBTQ plus community without agreeing with them and was instantly shunned by her friends and to this day is sits by herself in the cafeteria with her Bible and reading and praying in the face of the faithless, that is living by faith. So what will living by faith look like for you? For some of you, it's not a matter of crossing the ocean to share Jesus. It's just a matter of crossing the street. For some of you, it's, it's not opening up your life. It's opening up your savings because you're too covetous with what you have. And for some of you, it's not giving up your money. It's giving over your time to serve somebody else. And to some right here in this room or watching online, it's not coming to a real church. It's coming to real faith. If you think about it, and you listen to this, if you think about it, unbelievers exist only on earth. There aren't any in heaven, and there certainly aren't any in hell. If you die an unbeliever, you will go to hell. And wait for it, there become a believer. Yet you will suffer forever for refusing to believe when it would have made an everlasting difference. And by the way, for the record, there is no record that Jesus ever went back to Nazareth. The scripture says after that, he left. And there's no record he ever went back. You don't get a second chance in the afterlife. So your faith better be real in this one. Is it? Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you for this great, great word from your word. How your son Jesus could be in a place where he was humanly, I don't know, unable to do many miracles. I don't understand that. And that he would marvel. In the same way he marveled at the centurion, he marveled over the faithlessness of the people who knew him best and loved him least. Lord, I pray for Sailorville Church that you would make us a true people of faith.
Dear friend, as we pray right now, do you have faith? Real faith? Have you believed with all of your heart in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus? Have you done that? If you haven't, you'll believe. You'll believe later on. Don't wait until it's too late. Believe now and trust him as your Savior and Lord. Follower of Jesus, what kind of contagion does your faith have? Does it lift people up? Does it galvanize them? Does it point them to Christ? Or something different? Would you examine yourself in this moment? Lord, we know your word says the just shall live by faith and that we walk by faith, not by sight. Help us to that end, we pray, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.